Welcome to Menno HealthCast, a production of Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship in partnership with Anabaptist World. We're glad that you can join us as I speak to Dr. Robert Martin. Dr. Martin is a retired physician currently living in York County, Pennsylvania. He spent much of his career working in medical missions in Nazareth, Israel. He recently published his memoir, Together in Galilee. Bob, thank you for talking with me today. Thank you for the invitation. Can you tell me about your journey from a rural farming village to being a physician in Nazareth? I was born in York County. I was the youngest of seven children in our family. I grew up on a farm. My father was bivocational. He was a pastor of a small Mennonite church, and uh, we had a farm. So I went to a one-room schoolhouse, and at eighth grade, the question was, uh, what would uh, Robert do next year? Because all of my older siblings never had the opportunity to go to high school. That year, the uh, bus service was started uh, so that it would be possible for me to take a bus to go to high school in Spring Grove. And my oldest brother, uh, we were mending a, a fence on the farm, he and my dad and I. And so he asked my father uh, what the plans were for me. Well, my dad said, just assumed I'd uh, be working on the farm. Well, my brother said, I think Robert should start and go to high school. And that was very foundational because that started uh, educational opportunities for me. So that was high school. And then uh, the, uh, my faith journey, being a part of the Anabaptist church, I developed a strong orientation to the peace witness. Learning to follow Jesus has been a lifelong process, and it's his guidance and his mercies that have uh, made it possible for me to become a physician in Nazareth. When I read your book, I saw the importance of the relationships. You already mentioned one of them, when your older brother advocated for you to pursue high school. But you also talked about how your father loaned you money for one of your homes. You mentioned how your mother was pleased with your academic achievements and others saw your leadership potential and helped propel you into this career. Can you tell me about some of the people who saw your potential and propelled you forward? Yes. In high school, the supervising principal for the school district was an Anabaptist. Uh, His name was uh, Grant Herr. And he also attended our church from time to time. So he was my educational role model and uh, encouraged me to continue education. I didn't know what I was going to do. Then when I got to high school, I started vocational agriculture, and I did that for two years. And then I thought, you know, I'm not sure I want to uh, go back to the farm. Maybe I'll try to see if I could be a veterinarian. So I switched curriculum in high school and took the more academic course. Of course, I had to do some makeup work, and I had a, a math teacher who set aside time at noon and out of the classroom to help me to catch up. For example, algebra. And I'm very grateful for a, a teacher who took extra time to, kind of, to tutor me to, so I could do that. Then I got to college, and there I had a wonderful mentor, Daniel Souter, and uh, a biology professor. I was at Eastern Midnight University just for my last two years of college. My first two years, I went to a local college in York. And so I think my, my parents and my dad, when they attended my graduation from junior college, they were ready to 
or kind of released me to go away from home. To that point, uh, they weren't eager for me to go away from home to school. But uh, when I finished junior college, it seemed to be okay then. Can you tell me how you process some of your cross-cultural journeys, including that first big step from farm life in York County to medical school in Philadelphia? At that stage, there was no if really interracial integration in our farm community. There were a few cross-cultural students at York Junior College, but it was mostly community. But I, when I went to way to Eastern Mennonite College at that time, my roommate was from Uganda. And that was my first exposure to really a cross-cultural uh, setting in person. Then after college, I was uh, applied to work in New York Hospital and nothing opened up there. But then I applied to Mennonite Central Committee and they recommended that I look into going to the National Institutes of Health and join a group of volunteers that were going to participate in as uh, normal controls in research projects. And that's what I did. They chose me to lead the unit that summer. I had the opportunity to volunteer and work time in some of the major laboratories at the National Heart Institute. In fact, I was involved in the, some of the research that went into developing the statin uh, medications. And I scared my mother and I scared my girlfriend at that time because they weren't so sure how this was going to turn out for me to uh, be in these research projects. And of course, I had nasogastric tubes to swallow and blood samples. And I only later learned how much my mother worried about my being this. But being in Washington, our group went out and we uh, picketed at Fort Detrick, the development of uh, biological weapons. And we helped to clean up some houses in downtown D.C. So this was very cross-cultural, even before I got to medical school. And then, of course, you made many cultural shifts going back and forth from uh, stateside to your medical missions internationally. How were those cross-cultural shifts for you? They were interesting and at times difficult. I'll bypass the, for now the selection process of how we got to go to Israel. But uh, in 1965, we boarded a ship in New York City called Shalom, which was a modern ocean liner that the Israel government owned. And it was actually only about its third or fourth trip. And in September, the passengers were probably 95% or more Jewish. And many of them were going to Israel for the Jewish high holidays. And so here we found ourselves in a totally different culture uh, on ship for two weeks. And such things as when our son who was 18 months old wanted some milk, they didn't have milk. We had to go to a separate deck and a separate kitchen because uh, they, they wouldn't serve milk in the dining room of other meats. And so that was our introduction. I learned my first word of Hebrew, some phrases, those two weeks on ship, uh, how are you, and hello, and, uh, how, and that was my introduction. However, when we got to Israel, it wasn't Hebrew that we used, we needed to learn Arabic. Our housing, when we got to Nazareth, was in the back of a Nazarene church in downtown Nazareth. I remember the first morning, the sounds, the music was different, the smells were different. At that time, there were camels and donkeys that would uh, 
go up and down the street. And this was just really a very different setting. Actually, I was, I was very anxious initially. And then when they started working in the hospital, this was a, a, a Mansfield Hospital as a owned by the Scottish Society, Edinburgh Medical Mission Society. And so a lot of the staff were from the UK. They started laughing at me when I would go in the morning and say, hi, and this was like, uh, this was the American expression that you would never say hi in, uh, in, in England, of course. Just a, an example of, uh, uh, we were the only Americans on the staff of the hospital at that time. These were adjustments, but it worked out. At the very beginning of our interview, you mentioned that you would follow Jesus Christ and that you would be Jesus Christ's peace witness. And so that makes me think about the Selective Service Board. And as I read your book, I just thought how much the Selective Service Board and your choice to be a conscientious objector affected your life. Can you talk a little bit about how you chose Nazareth to start to do your service? Sure. It was during my internship at the Harrisburg Hospital that I was uh, drafted. The Vietnam War was going on. All of the interns there at that time, about a dozen of us, everyone was, was drafted. I thought I'd like to check out the Indian Health Service. And I wrote off for that and found out that that was really not a possibility for me. And then there was a clinic in West Virginia in the rural area of Harmon of Dr. Samuel Booker, who was actually one of the founding members of the Mennonite Medical Association, the forerunner of MHF. And he wanted us to come and to staff a clinic in Greek in a remote area where the national observatories are. My wife and I traveled down and he hosted us. We checked that out. However, the Selective Service Board said no, they wouldn't approve of this, that this uh, did not meet uh, their, their requirements. So now it was Christmas time. Uh, halfway through the year, and I was kind of worried about uh, what would we do. So I drove down to the mission board for the uh, Eastern Mennonite Board of Missions in Lancaster. I said, I'm drafted. Do you have any openings for me? And the administrator looked across the table and said, yes, we do. He said, "Uh, I know just the place for you and your wife, the Nazareth Hospital. I said, how is that? Well, he went on to explain that the head of the hospital had visited Lancaster the preceding year to check out who the Mennonites were. He was British. And he was so taken in, and the people at the mission boards liked him. So he said, you find us a doctor, and whoever you send will be fine with us. And so I went home. I said, "Uh, Nancy, Paul Crable at the mission board thinks that we ought to go to Nazareth and she gave a big laugh. <laughs> she said, well, how nice. It's Christmas. Wouldn't that be charming? Uh, so we ended up then meeting with a mission couple, Roy and Florence Kreider, who were home, and they told us about Israel. And after that, the results came back that West Virginia was not a possibility. Indian Health Service was not a possibility. But everything was opening up for us to go to Nazareth, which we knew absolutely nothing except what the Kreiders told us. I had no photographs, didn't know anybody had served there. So we were adventurous. So we had our son who was less than a year old. And so it ended up that they said, come. And we said, we'll go. And we had some crates built, put some things in and got on ship in September of uh, 1965. Country of Israel was only 17 
years in existence at that time. It turned out to be wonderful. I, I've just read some letters that Nancy wrote back that her mother saved, and she wrote again and again how, how she was enjoying it. I was enjoying it in the medicine part, but that part, it was, it was good adventure. We got there to experience the war. Just one thing about the, the cultural a bit, as an example of learning a new culture, we had a, a teacher on our second time back to Nazareth to teach us Arabic for about five months. And he was a great mentor about the culture. When he came to visit us, he saw a doormat that had our name on it. And he said, oh, no, no, no. He said, that's a shame. You mustn't do that. To have people to walk over your name is very, very disrespectful. He said, you must put it up and tack it on the wall. <laughs> and little things like that. It was, it was really, really fun getting to, to learn and adjust to a new culture. So here you were, freshly done your internship. So you were maybe mid-20s at the time? Yes, that's correct. Mm -hmm. Mid-20s, a one-year-old, married for just a few years. Did you ever feel overwhelmed or underprepared to play the role that you ended up playing there as a junior physician at a new Nazareth hospital? That phase of our overseas assignment was, was adventurous. One of the purposes of the hospital filled in education was that the Edinburgh Medical Mission Society, which was formed in 1841, their purpose was to train and send doctors to Africa. But they said that it would be good if we had an intermediate place, rather than go right from the UK out to the jungles of Africa, they could go to a hospital where things weren't like they were in the UK. We had doctors to come that were junior doctors, of which I was one. And so there were four of us there at the time. And so we worked under the supervision of uh, four senior doctors on staff. We were filling a role that was really comfortable at that time. And it was those years that I really learned that I liked internal medicine. I learned that I didn't have the skills to be a surgeon. It was a, a win situation. I think it was three years, then you went and finished your residency in internal medicine. That is correct. So what was it like to be in Israel during the Six-Day War? It was scary. However, the senior staff that had lived through World War II as young people, they knew what you had to do in a, a war zone. So we did the blackout, put up curtains, we painted a red cross on top of the roof of the hospital, and some humor was uh, added. Uh, the superintendent, one, one of the jets went over and the sound barrier and just scared everybody. Always, he said, that's, uh, Abdul Nasser just dropped his false teeth. I have pictures, when we operated, we put tape over all the glass outside windows for shattered glass. We saw the, the jet fights in the air. We saw uh, fires on the plane from Nazareth. The night the war broke out from our living room, we could see across to the Jordanian-Israel border, the artillery fire. So we were really in, in the, the war zone, but thankfully it only lasted six days. I learned something uh, that was kind of sobering. The Arab staff weren't necessarily pleased that the war turned out the way that it was. I had to be nonpartisan. 
So Nazareth Hospital served mostly an Arab population, is that correct? That is correct, mostly. Yes, mm -hmm. from Nazareth and the villages around Galilee. And it was the only hospital between Jerusalem and Beirut when it started in 1861. What was it like to be in that area of the world that was almost constantly, or still is, constantly in conflict? If you cannot tolerate risk, it's not a good place to be. The thing that saved me was I had an inner peace and calling that we were to be there. So the American consulate gave us three warnings to get out of the country, both during the Six-Day War, and we were there for the 71 War, as well as the Gulf War in 91. And we were advised to leave the country. We did not. And we felt that this was part of what we wanted to give witness to, to peace and to stay. And I think that really spoke to the population that we, we were serving. Our son, during the last year we were there, he rode the bus to Tel Aviv on Mondays and came back Fridays. And on that bus line, one of the buses was uh, blown up and uh, people killed during the, the period of when there was a, a lot of attacks on uh, civilian targets. Wow. Do you want to walk me through a little bit how you found your way back to Nazareth Hospital for your second and third terms? For the second term, we found our way back. I was in my residency at George Washington University in the second year. And during that time, my predecessor, the head of medicine at the hospital, had been there 15 years, and he decided to move his family of four children and his wife back to England. And they asked me to replace him. And I said, we would pray about it. We talked to our church family at the Hyattsville Mennonite Church and to the mission board, to our family, told them that we had this invitation. And over several months, it seemed that uh, we should say yes. But I said, I can't come until I finish my residency, which was after another year. They said, fine, we will get temporary help. My last year of residency at GW, knowing that I was going back to Nazareth and that I had been there before, I knew something about the kind of cases. I knew that infectious diseases were important. So one of the things I did was I took an elective at the University of Maryland with uh, Dr. Theodore Woodward in infectious diseases, particularly uh, Shigella and uh, Salmonella and, uh, and so on. Uh, and I did on GI, I asked to be assistant for endoscopies because we had no endoscopy in Nazareth. So I learned some basic techniques of doing uh, upper endoscopies. Cardiac disease was uh, prominent, so I, I spent some time in the cardiac uh, care unit. And so I was able to, back in Nazareth during the uh, 1970s, initiate upper endoscopy. We were able to set up a small cardiac care unit. And uh, this was terribly rewarding to uh, apply these new technologies and developments in medicine at that time. That was the second time. The third time we went back was really a request for my wife, Nancy, to begin a nursing school. And the reason for that was that Israel was limiting the visas it would give for overseas workers. And the hospital was, prior to that, very dependent upon uh, nurses coming from Europe, the UK, and we had 
one from the States and one from Canada. So it was at a graduation ceremony at Western University that two students who had been there for electives had come back and hand carried a letter from the superintendent of the hospital asking if we would consider returning to Nazareth for Nancy to establish a school of nursing. During that time, she was a graduate student and also worked at Western University. She got her doctor's degree in educational administration. I worked in student health, did some administration. So this was in 1984, and it took us one year to process and to say yes. It was the most difficult decision I've made in my life because at that point, I just received full tenure to stay on faculty at the WVU. I was getting an adequate uh, salary. Children, our son was just going to start med school. Our daughter was in college. I knew then the problems and the issues, but the biggest thing was my role was to, to be head of the hospital. And uh, this was administration. I was trained as a doctor. I audited some business courses at WVU the last year, but to return for the third time, and my father was in his late 80s. I actually had to get some biofeedback to help control my blood pressure and my anxiety. And once the decision was made, and time doesn't permit, but that's a story in itself, that I felt a great burden go off my back. And I said, yes, Lord, with your help, we'll do it. And so it was really Nancy's role to start the nursing school. She started with 18 students. The first class graduated in 1989. And today, I'm told that there's, in the different programs, there's uh, 400 students at the Nazareth Hospital. And it's now an academic school of nursing. It took her six years to get approval from the Israeli government to get full registration of the, the program. We were working with a minority population, and you can kind of picture the struggle that it is to advocate and to get things done for a minority population. That's what we were working with, particularly Nancy. I want to comment on a few things that struck me. First, your third year residency in internal medicine, you must have had such a sense of purpose. You, you knew what the hospital had and what it needed. And you went after that, whether you know it was your thought process well, about starting a, a cardiac unit or the endoscopies. And you must have been just about the most I, voracious student, the um, I, resident at I, that I, time. I, well, you know, I was because the internet didn't uh, exist then. And so I took a whole library of, I would photocopy articles that I thought I would need relevant to what I wanted to do. At GW, I was photocopying things about, well, for example, the new technique of uh, lidocaine drips to uh, get rid of PVCs and acute myocardial infarction and infectious disease. And so I had a wonderful eight years of clinical medicine. I had the hospital, we had students coming from the United States, from New Zealand, from Australia, from Switzerland, Holland for rotations. Of course, there was the language challenge. The patients spoke Arabic. The nurses were trilingual, Hebrew, Arabic, and English. And if I had to do over, I would have worked harder at the beginning to get a better grip on, on Arabic. I gave it a try. I went to the Hebrew old pond, the one who went back the third time to learn, uh, try to learn Hebrew, but that, that didn't go so well. You mentioned that the third time you 
you really feel like the major contribution that you and Nancy made was Nancy developing this nursing school. What an amazing contribution. And as I process that when reading your book, I see it as this hospital that used to be dependent on foreign physicians and foreign nurses. And so that's just a hard place to be. And like you mentioned, when the government shut down borders and didn't let workers come in. And so here it was, now you have this nursing school, so you're able to use talent in the local community and it makes much more of a sustainable program instead of having to import foreign workers. I emphasize the nursing because that's what my wife was into. The whole other aspect was developing uh, specialized doctors. I had a medical director that I worked closely with and we had, at that time, a lot of doctor graduates came from the Eastern Europe, from Italy, Romania, Czechoslovakia. There was a pretty strong socialist emphasis in the country. So we sponsored them for specialty training and were able to initiate departments of orthopedics, uh, urology, and for me, the most uh, rewarding specialty that I helped to bring about was mental health. Employed the first Arab Christian uh, psychiatrist, probably was, at the time was maybe the only one in the, in the country. What I read in your book was just throughout your tenure of your different times in Nazareth, you went from a very small, very rural or I don't know about rural, small, but very small, small mission hospital, a and, small yeah. mission hospital. And it just blossomed into a state of the art hospital yeah. or um, over those three times that you were there. So what a neat position you were in to see it from its nascency to really be pushed into this worldwide spectrum of excellent hospital care. Before we wrap up here, I do want to uh, acknowledge and say how thankful we were for the support that we got here stateside through colleagues, and particularly uh, the Nazareth Project, nonprofit organization which helped us to raise funds for the new building project we were on, and which goes on to, in recent years, uh, help them to develop a cardiac care unit. Several years ago, opened a stroke unit. Uh, now they're applying to become a, a level three trauma center for Nazareth, which now is 100,000 people. And, a quarter of a million people in, in the area. It's a pretty amazing journey from the little Florence Nightingale open-type British uh, male and female ward and maternity ward that was there in 1965. They played a central role in COVID treatment in the northern uh, part of Israel uh, during this, this epidemic. The story of how Nash's project came about is a very fascinating one too. It kind of started with a medical student from the University of Pennsylvania who had suffered loss in his family. He came out for an elective and caught division and went on to organize it as uh, Nashville Project uh, USA. Another great story right there, somebody catching a vision and yep. making it blossom into something amazing. One of the core themes of your book was your relationship, your amazing partnership with Nancy. Can you tell me about how you work together and some of the pros and cons maybe of having such a close working relationship with your wife and anything else you want to tell us about your wonderful wife, Nancy? Oh my goodness. Her life goal was to promote faith and health. She did it very well. And when we came back from the States in 1995, she then became director of the Christian Mental Health nonprofit in the Lancaster area. 
And then she also went on to serve on the Nazareth Trust uh, and made trips three or four times a year back to Nazareth or to England on the governance board. But our working relationship, the mission board was helpful in setting up sort of an accountability so that she wasn't directly accountable to me uh, as I was a hospital director. She was a nursing school director. I was very grateful for that. She was quite independent to run the nursing school, develop it, recruit funds, so that one could potentially see a conflict there, but I don't really think that there was. What I can tell you about her was that when we went there, it was not easy for her. The British had some experience there where they made the policy that doctors' wives would not work in the hospital. Apparently, there was a, a bad experience in the past. And so they were very skeptical. She was not welcome initially in the hospital. During our second time, they had a, a little practical school. And so when the director of that left, they asked her to help teach. And so she had to develop her own credibility. And we had many, many visitors, tourists coming, uh, raising our children. So her job had multiple aspects to it. And so after our second time there, she was quite ready to come back to the States. And I was totally amazed at her willingness to say yes to the invitation to go back and start the, the school of nursing. It was a journey of faith. And uh, we cried. She cried when we uh, said goodbye to our children and they were off to college and we were off to go back to, to Israel. I've not said anything about the Gulf War, but that was, uh, it was just horrendous to prepare for uh, chemical weapons that we were told were, were going to come in. And we actually wrote final letters to our children, which we sent to the care of her sister and her husband in case we didn't survive the Gulf War. I'm learning new things about her as I read letters that she wrote home that I didn't uh, know that they were kept. And so that's how I'm spending part of my COVID time uh, since I wrote my book is reading. She was a rather prolific writer. I thought a lot in writing this book that she could have done a much better job. Uh, but anyhow, that's the way it is. Sounds like you missed her partnership last year when you were writing your memoir. I, I, I did. I missed her, but it was also therapeutic. Mm -hmm. You got depressed. Us. You were 56 years of marriage together? That is correct. Yes. Yeah. yeah. When she was diagnosed with cancer, she also had an interest in help to starting a hospice when we learned that the, her cancer had already metastasized to the liver and so forth. The moment that she was able to make the decision that she would go directly to hospice, would not go through chemotherapy or anything, she was so happy and so relieved. So we had uh, five months to celebrate birthdays, both hers and mine, celebrate our 57, 57th uh, anniversary, to celebrate our granddaughter's wedding. We were blessed with time to prepare to say goodbye. Sounds like you made the most of every moment you could during her last several months of life. We tried. And now you've returned home. You're back in York County. What's it like to be home? What are your plans for the future? 
Well, we built a retirement uh, house here just uh, near the Susquehanna River, out in the country, up in the hill, overlooking the river, uh, on land that uh, our daughter owns. She's developing, has events here that I help to host on the area. I still, I'm thankful I can do some outdoor work, remain active in my church, which is still back in Lancaster. And I'm enjoying reading in a way that I never had time before. And we'll see what God opens up. Well, Bob, thank you for joining me today for this episode of Mental HealthCast. And thank you to our listeners for being part of today's conversation. Please join us again next time. If you're interested in donating or becoming involved with Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship, please go to our website or email us at info at We invite you to financially support the mission of the Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship to help continue this dialogue about the intersection of faith and health.